Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Here you go. Here you go. Matheson, that's the nothing personal word of the day. He actually asked me if I could make a toga. I could have made a toga, but that is not truly enough to describe my guest for the next Nothing Personal Samson sit down. We have Tim Matheson, who is one of my favorite, if not the best actor I know, and I know plenty, a career that you simply can't believe, a brilliant, learned man who has used his platform in a way that is making a palpable difference, not just around the country, but around the world. Tim Matheson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, David. It's fabulous to be on your show. I love your program. Thank you so much for having me. Do you recall when we met by chance? Absolutely. Um, and, and I just showed you this. I just, I'll sh- share it with your, uh, your viewers that too. Then I'm holding up a card from the Expos, which says, uh, David P. Sampson, Vice President Executive. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's from um, Montreal. I was up there shooting. I was playing JFK in a, a, um, a miniseries with... Uh, uh, with, with Jack, it was Jackie. It was uh, uh, Joanne Wally Kilmer at the time, and um, and that's when we met. And and you invited me to the game, and I brought my son. I think to actually his first baseball game, or maybe one of his early baseball games. So we just talked on another episode about that. I was in Montreal, and so many things get filmed. So many movies and TV shows are filmed up in Montreal, and there are people who want it. There are movie stars who want to go to games. They want to do something, and so we would get called. And so I got a call. Hey, uh, Tim Matheson has an interest in coming to a game. Once I got through the first question, which always was, well, will he buy a ticket? That's the first question I would always ask. And then depending on my view. Actor buy a ticket? Are you crazy? (laughs) So I compliment actors who when they do buy tickets. That said, when I have a love of the work of a actor, so it's totally my own personal preference. It's truly dealer's choice. Tim Matheson? Oh, bring him now. What about his kid? No problem. What about getting on the field? A hundred percent. And that is how our relationship started. And you were, as a man, way cooler than you were as an actor. And to me, you, the cruel factor as an actor was off the charts. Well, thank you. That's acting. You know, I, mean, I was, as a kid, I was the least cool kid in high school. The, the shortest, scrawniest, um, little ragged little thing there, you know, couldn't get a date, couldn't, you know, I mean, I actually had a young, attractive young woman named Janelle Penny tell me, I would go out with you if you were six feet tall, which I was like six, eight inches short of that. And, you know, and I don't think I ever, ever got to go out with Janelle Penny, but it was one, you know, it's, I, I fortunately got to play some characters when I gained my height that allowed me to look cool. So then I could sort of manufacture that in real life too. So when you first started, wait, wait, but you've been in the business forever. You were like bar mitzvah age when you started. So are you saying that you were awkward and not good when you first started in your, in terms of your own self-belief? Oh, I was, you know, there's, there's 
several different types, types of actors and there's the hambone types that can just get up and sing and dance and always want to be the center of attention. I was a shy little kid and it was my way of therapy, I guess, you know, or my way of finding a, a way to transform into other people. I couldn't, I couldn't really, I was very shy personally, but once I had a character and once I had the dialogue, then I could be expansive. But, uh, but other than that, I was just terribly shy, especially around girls. But how did you know you had that skill of 13 before your first audition? Tell me about your first audition. Oh, gosh. I auditioned for a show called Window on Main Street that Robert Young was uh, doing right after Father Knows Best ended. And I auditioned for the lead role. And, um, you know, and I had been taking drama classes. So it was one of those things that it just felt good. When I, you know, once I got in character or whatever that meant at that point in my life, it just freed me to express emotions and these emotions that I was blocking off in my real life came out. So I just kept seeking to do that. And I always wanted to be an actor. I, and I think because I used to go and watch movies on the weekend, my parents were going through a divorce. So I would just sit in a movie house and you could then just sit there and watch it over and over and over again. And I remember watching witness for the prosecution with Charles Lawton and looking up at the screen and going, I want to do what he's doing. I want to be in there. I want to be inside there. And I just always wanted to do that. And the minute I got a chance to do that, I just started. And, and, uh, but you know, I like that audition I had, I was good, but I'd never done anything. So they said, well, we like you, but we're going to use you for a small part. And, and I just joked that I was like the third kid through the door. You know, I had like three lines and the first kid through the door was the, the lead in the show. And then there was the, his buddy. And then there was the other guy. And I, you know, so I started out doing the other guy and um, then slowly built up and uh, you know, and was, which was good, I think, because I think it was hard if, if a kid bang becomes a success right off his first job, because then what do you follow that up with? You know, there was a guy named Jay North who played leave it to be, I mean, uh, Dennis the menace. And um, I mean, we used to see him on auditions before Dennis the Mendes. And we're going like, oh, yeah, man, I wish I'd gotten that. And then after that show was over, what did Jay North do? The poor kid. You know, I'd see him back on auditions again. And it was like, it must be hard for him after doing that show to come out and audition against me and a bunch of other, you know, knockabouts. So it, it was challenging. And I, don't, I think it was hard for kids to, who didn't have the emotional uh, um, ability to process losing their jobs and things like that. It was hard for them to accept those realities. When I look at a list in my head of child stars and whether or not they were able to parlay that into a career, that is a short list. And you are on that list where you have had a career now I, without giving away your age because you're, look, by the way, you look, we look the same exact age. We ain't hiding. Yeah, I'm 49. So it's like, no, I'm 72. I'll be 73 at the end of the year. So you are, are you going to have like a 60th anniversary party? Can I come? Yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Absolutely. You're going to have 60 years in your career. And hopefully we won't have to do it on Zoom. You know, I mean, hopefully we can do it in person and, you know, clink classes, not virtually clink, you know. Is there a plan actually to start filming your most recent is Virgin River, which was outstanding. I actually reviewed it on the show. It is, I can't believe you get to act with Annette O'Toole, who I've loved since the minute I laid eyes on her. And you actually get to be mean to her and then love her and have this moment. 
Is that, what is the filming schedule for that? We have uh, completed two, epi- two seasons and we are, um, we are looking for a date to, to begin the third season up in uh, Vancouver, all COVID dependent, all, you know, up in the air about when we might do that, you know, but it's still up in the air. But uh, the, the second season will premiere on Netflix, I believe in the fall. We, they, they haven't given us an exact date, but it's coming up. Well, I can't wait. I'll definitely watch it. I will review it. But that means that for sure you are having a 60 year anniversary because you will be in the industry in front of the camera, behind the camera. We haven't even talked about the fact that you direct because I saw you in Florida. You came to a game uh, with the Marlins when you were directing a show. I want to say with Gabrielle Anwar called Burn Notice. Am I close? Yes. And you remember is the only time I've ever thrown out the opening pitch. And I got out there, you know, uh, with the stars of Burn Notice and, and Jeffrey Donovan. And Jeffrey was an athlete, and, he, you know, and he'd been working out all week with his, his, his toss. And then uh, uh, Bruce was there, and he, and he had a whole comic routine worked out and did the whole thing. And now I'm standing there like, I haven't even picked up a ball yet. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, that is a long way. And I didn't, I didn't bounce it. I didn't shame myself. It was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of an arc, but uh, it was, it was credible. It was credible, but thank you for that, uh, that opportunity. It was awesome to watch you do it. And, and you're just, you're so diverse. I was thinking you wanted to be, you were watching movies saying, I want to be that you're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And then under 10 years later, you're in the toga. So when you're looking right at your career as it's starting and you're thinking, wow, that's a pretty serious movie I'm watching, you know, witness for the prosecution. And then all of a sudden animal house cap ends. Can you just give me a quick story, how that audition went and whether or not there was an inkling that you would play the role you ended up playing. And did you realize at the time I'm fascinated by this and we've never talked about this, what that animal house would be, what it has become, which is one of the probably 50 most iconic movies in cinema history. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's uh, high praise. Well, first they wouldn't let me audition. I mean, I had a couple of meetings with him and they said, no, he's not right. He's a cowboy. I was playing a lot of cowboys and my hair was really long, probably a little longer than it is now. And, And they said, he's a cowboy or a surfer. He's not preppy. And they would not let me audition. And I, I had uh, some uh, friends and, that I had just worked for Universal, and so they had executives there that knew me, and they said, let him audition. Just get, you know, I, I begged. Just, I said, let me audition, and then if you, then if you say no, I, I can live with that. Uh, they had then offered me the part of one of the Omegas, like uh, Greg Marmalade or one of those, and I said, no, I don't want to be in this movie if I'm not playing a, a Delta and Otter. I wanted to play Otter. So they let me audition, and... Uh, I had been studying improv to try and change the course of my career because I was playing these straight guys, you know, again, nice guy lived next door or whatever, and just the straight arrow type and, and not have never done a comedy. So with my improv skills or a newly learned improv skills, I just went in and have to audition with Peter Rieger and we had a ball. We just had a ball and not didn't change too much, but threw in a couple of little zingers and got some big laughs in the room from the writers and the director and, was John Landis in the room? John Landis was in the room. And um, they had us do some more, you know, do another scene, do another. And they got really, really excited. And then Landis took me out in the hallway and he goes, you're great. We love you. We're going to give you this job, but don't go and tell anyone until we make an offer. And don't tell anyone. I immediately went and called my agent. 
and <laughs> and don't pre- and pretend like I didn't say anything. And I, they probably told them that I told them. But um, it was uh, it, it changed my life because it, it allowed me to believe that I could be a comedian, and and um, you know, and and it changed the course of my career because I was doing more drama. And um, so I've been able to go back and forth between comedy and drama. And it's so much more fun and less stressful to go to work every day and try and make people laugh or to laugh yourself and be, and, and be with funny material and funny people. So it, it's just a nicer way of living. <laughs> I've always been bothered by the fact that comedy and, and has never been looked at in the way that drama is. And I view comedy as harder than drama. It is hard to make people laugh. It's hard to do both mental and physical comedy. And people somehow think that a, that a John Belushi or a Chevy Chase, and we're going to talk about him, or a Chris Farley, that, and we're going to talk about him, that they, you've worked, by the way, just that list. That's, you're almost at the Mount Rushmore, right, of physical comedians. And it's hard. You know, when I was younger, um, I was 17 years old, and I did a movie with Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda called Yours, Mine, and Ours. And Lucy, we had a scene in the kitchen, and Lucy was very gracious to me and very, uh, you know, um, positive and supportive of me and, and, and you know, really, a, so, you know, gave me a lot of uh, kudos about my work. And then one day we were doing this scene with all the kids, there must have been 10 of us in a, in a kitchen, a prop guy is under the sink, popping toast up on a certain line so Lucy can grab it out of midair because it's shot way up in the air and she grabbed it. And, and she did it a couple of times in the middle of the scene. She turned around and looked at everybody and goes, always rehearse with your props. And, you know, and it was like, okay, Lucy. And I didn't realize until I got into broader physical comedy, it, what she was saying was, and it's an old, she, they came from vaudeville, these people. And they really knew, they did it, you know, nine shows a day was you can't get the laugh. You can't get the joke and land it without rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. So it was one of those things. It's not, you can't just throw it off and just say, yeah, yeah, it's great. It was just, she was like, she was carving a diamond, you know, and she was so specific and so good. And, you know, as a young actor, you think, oh, I just got to be casual and loose. And, and, and it, yes, that's part of the act too. That's Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda was just miraculous to watch how prepared he was, but just how, effortless and what ease he had, you know, and a great contrast to Lucy, but, you know, they had worked together before. And and so it was also a treat for me. And I worked with Jackie Gleason and Bob Hope and uh, um, Dan Johnson and, and and people like that. So, and Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds. So I, I had those two careers as a kid. And then as I got older with Belushi and Chris Farley and Chevy and, and, you know, those, those, that next gen. So it, it was, I learned a lot from those people early on. You know? Do you know how much preparation it takes to look like you're unprepared? Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's totally it. And it's, it's hard work. And it's like, they should, they should never see you sweat. You know, they should never know how they should just go. Ah, it's easy. Acting is easy. So when you're on set with Belushi, what uh, had you met him before? No, I hadn't. A few of the guys in New York and most of the guys, most of our crew was from New York. Most, I mean, the crew was from L.A., but most of the acting crew came out of New York. And I think me and uh, Stephen First, who played Flounder, were the only two, maybe a couple of the Omegas came from L.A. And there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of sort of 
competition between New York and LA actors then. And, you know, New York were the real actors. They're the theater actors in LA, the pretty boys, the pretty people, and they don't really know how to do it. They just get by on their looks. Belushi could not have been more supportive and receptive and, and, and a pal to me in my first comedy attempt. And just, I think that what's one of the rules of, of improv is yes. And you never say no to anybody. You say, boy, it's, you know, it's, it's looks like it's going to snow. And you go, yeah, yeah, boy, I think it's starting, you know? So you just, you, you tee it up. I hit it. You hit it. I mean, it's just, we are all playing the same team. So there was, there was a tremendous support from him and, and which gave me encouragement and, uh, and I got to know him pretty well and, and he and his wife, Judy. And, and um, yeah, he was, he was a lovely, lovely man with a huge heart. So you talk about preparation, though. I'm thinking about improv. And by definition, that's the volleying back and forth. That's a skill that you perfect when you are on stage and you're, you're riffing with the audience, you're riffing with your fellow actors. But it, let's say in Animal House, did Landis allow on set there to be that sort of improv or was everything rehearsed? The food fight is seen as an example. Were those things well rehearsed? John Belushi popping the mashed potatoes. Is he rehearsing that or are you letting him use his improv skill and Landis was okay with that? Belushi was the main one and usually the only one who could really let go with the improv. I mean, there was a couple of things during the toga party, like the Jamie, Widows who played Hoover juggling and Bruce McGill playing his throat with the William Tell Overture. That was improv. And um, the, but Belushi was miraculous. I mean, he was an amazing performer and like his, you know, stealing food and eating food in the food line in the cafeteria before he sits down at the table um, with me and, and the uh, Omega group um, that was all improv. And they just set up a few things like the coffee, you know, like the little golf ball, which was obviously uh, artificial. And, and, but he would, he would just squeeze in that sandwich into his mouth. That's all John, you know, it was just, and I believe it's one take. I don't think he did that more than once. And he just had an ability to know that w what was real and funny. And he just, you know, and he'd been doing it so long that he could, and he was such a great physical comedian. And, you know, if you realize that part, he had very few lines. And that was a great concern to him initially that I don't, you know, and, and he didn't really have much, hardly any dialogue, but what he was, was as John Landis always described him was the cookie monster. He was the, he was the, this, this wild spirit, but with heart, you know, he was like, um, like, like Chico Marx, you know, and the Marx brothers, he just, he just was this indomitable spirit, but was filled with love. And that's who he was. And, and Landis always said to us, they have to like you guys. You know, that was his addition to the whole script was originally, it was all this crazy comedy college stuff. But when Landis read the script, he said, I didn't like them. I didn't like these guys. They, they were, you know, and he just said, you can't be mean to each other. You can't be mean to anybody. So that was the thing that, we all found that was the difference between us and the Omegas, you know. Um, Do you know that you're so we get as part of putting on baseball games, uh, we have in-game entertainment. You've seen it wherever you go and you have a jumbotron. And at certain parts in the game, we have people do certain things, certain clips that get the crowd excited, whether it's a safe situation or a home run. You're aware of your role in the sports pantheon or are you not? You've been to a bunch of games. Have you been to a game with your son and looked up and seen yourself as part of animal house, giving a speech where you then say, let it go. Have you nothing? 
Yeah, so I've seen it once. So now, I mean, which clip did you guys use? I mean, which? We used one about the Germans bombing Pearl Harbor. That's it. It's when you're down two runs in the ninth, that's the go-to. You right. stand up and say, was it over? Just let him go. Because it's so perfect. And what I love, it's an inside joke because half of the fans are like, well, what was wrong with that? Jesus. That's perfect. That is perfect. So, <laughs> they, the one they should have used was, hey, you fucked up. You trusted us. I mean, come on. I, no, the problem is people use that about me and they're wrong. <laughs> so I got a segue because I have a question. You were working with Belushi. Belushi dies of a drug overdose. Crushing. You then work with Chris Farley mm. on a movie. You take your life experience because you're not the young. I mean, you're still young, but not the young guy on set in that movie by any stretch. Not old, but... You see Chris Farley. You know Chris Farley has stated that he views his life as the second coming of John Belushi. He said it in interviews and personally. Did you see what was going on on that set? Did you see what the future was with Chris? How did you, I think about you a lot, Tim, because while working with these geniuses, these brilliant actors, there's also a, there's a dark side. And there's a there's something where that longevity that you've had is not likely to happen. How do you come to grips with that? Do you speak to Chris? Did you speak to Chris? Tell me about that. Well, Chris was reverential about Animal House and about John Belushi, and and uh, you know I I had an audition at Paramount. I, I did audition for it. You know they called me in, and uh, and Chris was there, and uh, he just. Act, he just he, ba- he did everything but roll out a red carpet, you know, and just and he just was so beside himself to meet me, and he just you know I was like you know Chris, I mean, geez, look, at, I mean you Chris Farley, are you kidding me? I mean it was, and he just was so gracious and so um, wonderful about it, and just quoted the lines and asked about Belushi and asked about that experience, um, and and we hit it off and we had a good audition and reading. I don't think there were anybody else they were thinking about it. They just probably just wanted to see us both together and to see if we, oh he's yeah they can play brothers sure sure. And but Chris was on his best behavior when we shot that you know he uh, didn't drink and he was so he'd go to AAA and and so he was really on his best behavior and he was just an indomitable performer and he would, it was one of the most wonderful things to watch him. We had a scene where I was doing like a campaign speech, like a rally or something. And there must've been 150, 250 background artists to play the crowd, you know, and they were there and, you know, and it's hard work where they're bored. They're standing outside in the sun all day. And Chris between takes would get up and he actually did a strip tease and, you know, and was doing one of his characters for them and just knocked them out. You know, they were crazy with, with laughter between takes just so that they would stay in it. And he just loved to perform and loved to amuse people and make people laugh and feel good. Um, the one thing that, that made me a little nervous was I, he, he changed smoke through the whole, you know, off camera. I mean, never didn't have a cigarette in his mouth. And, and so he was like, really, I just, wow, he's really smoking. And he also drank coffee, iced coffee that was like this big. And, and he had an assistant who would give him one of those. And I'm, I'm not saying every take, 
but every scene, let's say drink two or three of those. I mean, you know, you do 20 scenes a day, 10 scenes a day. I mean, that's, that's a lot of coffee and he's overweight. I'm just thinking, just poor heart. You can't, you don't want to be drinking that much coffee, you know? So, and I just, and I, you know, I'd make the joke to him. I said, it's a good thing you're clean. You know, like I just, you know, you, you got these, these passions, I think, you know, and it's, I'm glad you're, you're not doing drugs and alcohol right now, you know, period. And uh, I, I didn't know that he'd gotten back on. And, and you know, when I heard he passed, but uh, it was a grave, grave loss. And it, it, you know, those guys that are like Belushi and he, they're so famous and people want to party with them, you know? And so part of the thing is anytime anybody spots them, here, come on, have a drink. Let's have some, you know, Coke, let's do whatever, you know? And so I think, they just never got to that point in their life where somebody became so important to them that they settled down. They wanted to raise a family that, that didn't really enter into his mind perhaps, but couldn't have been more sweet and loving. What a, what a dear, dear man who just also revered the, the spirit of John Belushi. And, and he knew he had a, a, a talent and wanted to share it with everybody. And he just wanted to make people laugh. I mean, he was a dear, dear man. Didn't he die the same age as John Belushi? Am I yeah. making that up? Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly right. Same age. And it almost became like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you bring up something that it has to be mentioned. When you're famous and people want a piece of you, you just said, how do you turn down? Someone wants a drink. Someone wants you to do Coke. Someone wants you to go out, do something. I understand that point and what you're saying. On the other hand, there are people who are as famous who find a way to deal with that not by doing drugs every time. It's the famous thing when you buy, a, you've seen it in movies, you buy a girl a drink and she's putting the shopping right behind her head. You've seen it a thousand times, I think, with athletes. I mean, you, you, how do they do it? I mean... So for them, it's just, just point out, for athletes, it's different. They're not being offered drugs and drinks all the time. They're being offered women all the time. And drugs and drinks. So, Come on. No, I mean, it's, I mean, you're right. You're right. But I mean, it's a party. Every time you're in a, you're, you go to a new city, you're, you're on the road, you go to a city. I mean, I knew some basketball players when I was up in Vancouver back in like 99 and 01, I believe, um, when uh, the Grizzlies were there, you know, and, and um, I knew a couple of the players and, you know, went to a lot of games and, you know, and, and I just, and they lived in my building. And um, the, the day after a game, I'd, you know, and it's mostly the entourage, you know, of, of the players were, but they partied all night and, and they lived down the hall from me so I could hear them. And it was like, I, you know, but the, the players themselves usually just went and worked out. I never saw them party that much, but, you know. You were never invited to one of the parties and you were on their hall, on their floor? I'd gone a couple of times, but if I had to work or something, I couldn't go. You know, I mean, I went over a couple of times. But They had to work also. They had a game. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's an evening game. It's like, but it was, it was interesting. I said, I don't know how they do it. I just, just don't know how they do it. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. Don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Through the first round of the NBA playoffs, it's still all about the Celtics and the Nuggets. Will it be a likely matchup between the two powerhouses for the NBA championship? You can bet on the Celtics to beat the Nuggets at plus 400, or the Nuggets to beat the Celtics 
at plus 425 right now. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. So when you're a physical comedian like a Chris Farley, it's interesting what we do. I was thinking about Jonah Hill, or, or some people are saying Seth Rogen is in this category, that, that weight is a part of their, their look and their humor, and you have to reintroduce yourself as an actor when you lose weight or when you gain weight. You know, like Jonah Hill, he lost weight. He's not as funny. Chris Farley doing the Chippendale striptease with Patrick Swayze, right? Part of the humor of that is Chris Farley's body. So I imagine, and, I, and I've witnessed this, where actors say, this is the character I'm playing, but they forget that when the camera's not rolling, they don't have to play that character because in their mind, the camera's always rolling. And how do you get the camera to stop rolling? Because you've done it. You're 63 years in the business, uh, in the business or 60 years in the business. I mean, you, you have gone in and out of comedy, been incredibly successful. What, what is it the secret that you have that others didn't? Well, I tried, you know, I mean, as I sort of grew up in the business and I went, you know, like from a kid acting and then I did a lot of voice, cartoon voice work. I was Johnny Quest the, for Hanna-Barbera and did a bunch of different things like that. And then I was in the Virginian, Bonanza and The Quest, which were three Western television shows. I, I did a year in each one. I, I killed the Virginian. I killed Bonanza. And then I did The Quest for one year with Kurt Russell, who is a, is a kid actor and an athlete is, is one of the super, you know, greatest guys. Like you probably know Kurt. You know, he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful man and a funny guy and um, knows not to take himself or this business too seriously, And um, which is a, it was a lesson I learned working with him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, I just think that it, it's important just to keep it light and, and, and have a good time. It's not as easy. And I was just, you know, I'm going through in my mind all the things that we've talked about when we're not recording a show versus things that we're talking about now. I've never asked you even about Ryan Reynolds, another one of my favorite movies that you were in, Van Wilder. And that was before Ryan Reynolds became, I mean, Ryan Reynolds is, is epic and huge now. And he was just beginning. You've been a part, maybe you are the string that is used by everybody behind the camera in front of the camera because you're like this sage. Is that, is that your role, Tim? That's a very nice way of looking at it. I appreciate it. Um, You know, the, I didn't know who Ryan was when I start, when I got that movie and when they offered it to me, but I, I did my homework and I looked at his show. I think he was in two guys, a girl and a pizza thing or whatever. It was a sitcom. And I, and I, 
watched the show and I watched him. I said, well, he's funny. He's, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's good. And then when I met him, he was, first, he's Canadian. So he's like this, you know, he's like just a good, solid guy. You know, he's a real guy. Didn't think of himself too seriously. He doesn't, you know, he's not all puffed up about himself. And he studies comedy. He studies what he does. He had studied Fletch. He asked me all these questions about Chevy and Belushi and Animal House. And, you know, what about, you know, and tell me about Up the Creek. I had done this movie. And, and he's just like, so he's a student of, of the work, of the comedy. And he's, he's just, he's a very, very hard worker. And so what I, I looked you'd work with him in the scene and he was very, you know, he's quick and he's fast and he's, you know, he could repeat himself. And so I said, he's a real pro. He's really good. And he's very funny and relaxed and smart. And I said, yep, yep. I believe in this guy. I think the big things are going to happen for him. I mean, it's like you meet somebody like I'm sure with, with pro athletes, you'll look at him and you go, yeah, I, this, yeah, this is going to be big. You know, um, I think I, the first time I went to a, went to an Astros game and I saw it was the, it was a rookie that I'll tell you how long ago it was in, in the Astrodome. And it was Craig Biggio was a rookie and he was catcher then, I think. Right. And, and I just, he had, his, you know, he was like two for three or three for four that day. And it's like his opening day. And it was like, geez, this kid is, and he's a catcher, you know, and it was like, Oh my God, you know, and you could just tell there was something about him. Well, Ryan Reynolds was that one. He's uh, so Craig Biggio. That's funny. He's obviously in the Hall of Fame and you've touched on baseball. Is baseball your favorite sport? Yeah, I'd say so. Absolutely. So you go to NBA when you're on set on location. Do you go to whatever professional sports are going on in that location? Sure. I mean, I love hockey. I love watching hockey games. And and then we get a lot of that up in Vancouver. Um, And and there was basketball in Vancouver for a minute. Um, And uh, yeah, and, and basketball. I love watching, you know, of NBA games certainly. I mean, there's no, there's something about being in the in the uh, you know the the room or the auditorium where where an NBA game's going on. And just to see the the level that these guys these athletes are are playing at, and the, you know, and the, the it's so fast, the- isn't it? They're so big and it's so fast. Yeah, and and uh, and baseball. I don't you know. There's just something about baseball that is that that pace and you know how do you describe what that is? It's it's very American. It's very um, it's just heartwarming for me. I just love to go. And I must say the best baseball games that I think I've ever seen. I took my son and went to, uh, um, to Phoenix and, and uh, went to uh, um, Scottsdale for, for spring training one year. And those are the most fun games. I mean, you know, cause there's like 3000 people or 2,500 people. It's not sold out. It's like just people when you, and you can talk to the players, they throw balls to the kids all the time. And it's just, it's to me, and I'm wondering what you think the season will be like this year. And I just said, geez, I hope it's like spring training. I hope it's not as crowded. I mean, obviously, and I don't, I don't think they're going to have the crowds. Or if they're even going to let us in, I don't know. But well, now I know why you liked the Expos and the Marlins because you like small, <laughs> intimate crowds. So that's good. I appreciate that. Such a backhanded compliment, Tim. Hey. Thank you. <laughs> Got to slip one in. So, if you were invited to a game, would you go right now? I'd have to think long and hard um, and it depends on how they, you know, um, how many people they'd have. I wouldn't go if it was very crowded. I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm the target audience for COVID-19, you know, so I just, uh, we were in total isolation now this week. My kids came to visit. It's the first time we've ever, you know, been socially 
in the same area outside with, you know, with six of us, eight of us. And, you know, with masks and separate food containers for everybody. And, and so we've been very cautious about it. Um, I don't, I don't think I'd want to be in a public place very much for the next six months. You know? It's going to change the business. So it's not just going to change the sports business. It's going to change the entertainment business. Oh, yeah. you, I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about Broadway. I love Broadway. They're going to have to make changes because social distancing, if that is how life is going to be, you cannot social distance in a Broadway theater, especially intermission. Everyone's waiting online at the bathroom. The seats are so close together and the margins are so thin to begin with that right. if you're only running at 25% capacity, which to me, which would be a maximum in a Broadway theater, then it's a non-starter from a business standpoint. So I'm worried about Broadway. The movie business is also changing where you're going to see, in my opinion, more movies go right to video, which used to be it was the Scarlet V for so long. Oh, that movie went straight to video, right? That you didn't want to be associated with a movie that went straight to video. Now, let me tell you, isn't that how it's going to be? Oh, I think so. It's been leaning in that direction. And the, and the, what is it, the window has gotten shorter and shorter from the theatrical release till the video on demand or the video premiere. And the theater owners are fighting to keep the window longer to three months, six months, whatever. And, and the, the studios are saying, no, no, shrink it to six weeks. Who cares? And it's like, but I think this is going to change everything because I don't want to go sit in a movie house. I mean, you know, and they had to argue with the theater owners to say, Yes, you have to wear a mask. I mean, they were saying, no, you don't have to wear a mask. You know, and they, they made it a political issue instead of a medical issue. And it, it seemed to me, okay, fine. That makes it easy for me. I won't go. I just ain't going. You know? Well, you're talking about AMC. And yeah. they came out and said that we are not going to involve ourselves in this political process. We are not requiring masks. It took 24 hours for them to reverse course full 180 saying, eh, I think everyone's going to need a mask now. Well, I mean, yeah, right, because I think the huge influx of people, and I think I was one of them, I said, okay, fine, it makes it easy for me. I ain't going to AMC. I'll just cancel my AMC, you know, club membership or whatever. And it's like, ding, you know, I think, and, and the audience speaks out. And I just think not wearing a mask is a political statement, and it's not a medical statement. It doesn't hurt anybody if you wear a mask. You can hurt somebody if you don't wear a mask. So why would you do that? You know, I mean, would you go up to your 85 year old grandparent and, 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 and at a time like this and cough them and talk to them and hug them? No, of course you wouldn't. I mean, you, you'd be sensitive to that. Why wouldn't you treat other people on the street with the same respect? So if you were told by the Dodgers that the section, the, the, the club section down behind the plate that we're going to have. 30% capacity only. There'll be six feet of social distancing. You'll still come in through your, your elevator and we'll do things for the club members. We'll get rid of the buffet maybe. One thing I loved about Dodger Stadium is I loved the restaurant. I loved grabbing the, there were free peanuts and everything as you walk out to the seats behind the plate and you get to see Dennis Gilbert and Mary Hart. What could be wrong? Uh, what if they told you that they're going to control the atmosphere? You have to wear a mask, but... You cannot have, there's not going to be the food service, all the things that you're used to with the price you're paying for the ticket, but we're not lowering the price. Where do you come out in terms of the safety of that and whether or not you would go to a game under those circumstances? Under those circumstances, I'd go. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, they, you know, you, they probably have prepackaged meals or, 
or stuff and you can just pick it up and carry it out there yourself. I, I must say, I, I don't need to have that kind of service to enjoy a baseball game. And it's probably better if I don't, you know, it's, I, honestly, I've gone, I, you know, I've, I think you came up with us up to the, uh, to the, the Playtone suite and, you know, and said hello to Tom. I don't know if Tom was there. Tom Hanks is a, is a friend of mine and Gary Getzman who runs Playtone with Tom and, you know, they have food and everything laid out. For me, the fun is I go out and go downstairs and go to a couple of the different places to get a burger and to get a, you know, a hot dog or something. Because to me, that's the thing that I've always enjoyed about baseball is the, part of it is the food um, and the different food in the different cities where you go to a game. So that, that I enjoy. And I enjoy standing in line and talking to people and stuff. Obviously, Nowadays, I would avoid that, but I, I'd definitely be in there. And you know, you pay what you pay. Um, so, and, and you want to, as a as a fan of baseball, I want to help the team stay alive, and I want to help the players keep playing. You know, so I'd love to see them. And, and and you know, I've been listening to you talk about the new season. What is it going to be? Sixty games? They think. Yep, sixty games. All played in the home stadium. I mean, I, how's that? So- going? So it's so they're going to have 60 games, 30 home games, 30 road games. But the Dodgers, in theory, will play their 30 home games in Dodger Stadium. They're trying to get all 30 teams. They got an issue in Canada because right now the Blue Jays don't have permission to play in Canada. And Canada's looking at us as though we're completely crazy. So they don't want to let the road teams come into Canada to say nothing of the players who had been in Dunedin at spring training with the Blue Jays who are now testing positive. So they're trying to figure that out. But unlike the NBA and NHL, where they're trying to bubble, MLB is trying to just have a season where there's jumping on planes and going from city to city. I thought at one point I thought you talked about it or I'd heard maybe they'll only play like in the in their division, you know, that, that you'll play the whole season between Seattle and, and San Francisco and San Diego and, you know, in, in, in this region. They're doing geographical, Tim, geographical schedules. So the NL East will play the AL East and the Dodgers will only play the NL West, but also teams from the AL West. On the East Coast, the teams actually get to stay within their time zone the entire season. But of course, on the West Coast, you don't have that. The Dodgers have to go to Mountain. They have to go to Central. So that's just the reality of sort of the geographic regions. And you're talking about the political aspect of coronavirus, which is absolutely a fact and you're very active politically. You're, you are very um, outspoken. People think it's pejorative, but I don't. You are someone who actually is trying to educate people as to what's happening and how to understand in, in bites as an actor, you, you're behind the eight ball because everyone assumes all actors are dumb and all athletes are dumb and all sports executives are dumb and stay in your lane. Don't talk about anything other than you know what you can do. I want to give you an opportunity just to say that I appreciate what you do. I know you. So I know that acting is what you do, not who you are. And please don't stop what you do because it matters. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I just, you know, I'm an, uh, an avid political fan and, you know, was so before the West Wing and, and, uh, but especially because of working on the West Wing with, um, so many, you know, wonderful people, Lawrence O'Donnell and, and Dee Dee Myers and, um, you know, and, you know, Aaron Sorkin, always the smartest guy in the room. And just the level at which and the, and the research and I'm a big research nut. So I read 
Carl Sandburg's Lincoln, you know, which is seven volumes. It's got to be 7,000 pages. I mean, and it's like, so I, it's like day by day of the Lincoln life. And it's just an amazing, amazing uh, literature. But also just the American history and, and uh, that I've studied and read about and, and, and care so much about the history of this country and, and the way it's, the way it's evolved. I, I just, you know, and I went to the impeachment hearings for, for Bill Clinton, you know, and I was there because uh, um, I cared for the Republic. I cared, you know, I, I was, was sad that it would be, it would come to that, you know, um, over such a, a silly little issue. However, that aside, I just think that it's, it's, it's important for all of us as Americans to be involved in the process and afford all other Americans the same involvements or, or the ability to be involved on the same level, voting and, and speaking their minds and, and uh, freedom of the press. And, and um, I just think it's now more important than ever. And I see certain things trying to take that away. And, and uh, so an institutionalized hatred and institutionalized um, gerrymandering and, and voting fraud and I just think that uh, we have to fight against that. How much did the West Wing play a part in, in this evolution? You obviously played the vice president. West Wing is, it, I think, my third ranked. I rank, as you know, I rank my favorite movies. I rank my favorite TV shows. I put MASH first. I put Survivor second because I was on Survivor. And then West Wing right. is, is third. Uh, I learned so much from West Wing. I have such great respect. The Newsroom is an Aaron Sorkin show that people overlooked. I don't know why it is, it is brilliant, but West Wing to me, I've been rewatching it and I have not really rewatched TV series. Well, I watch Fletch and Animal House literally probably 50 times minimum more, way more. I met, have it memorized. I actually talk about Dr. Rosen Rosen and Dr. Rosen penis on, <laughs> on various shows. Uh, but West Wing is just, it's in a different ballpark to me in terms of what it can offer to viewers were you aware of that while you were filming it? Did, were the actors understanding of that? Oh, yeah. And I think because it was one of those, and it wasn't, you know, when, they, when Jack Kennedy was president, it was sort of perceived as Camelot, you know, a magic special time that ended sadly, you know, with his assassination, obviously. And, and the, the West Wing was, was sort of about the, the, noble, the noble people, the nobility of the people that were in politics for the right reasons and, and, and for a cause, you know, and, and who had heart and who had brains and who had a soul. And so it was about these noble people. And, and I think that that had a lot to do with it for me. And it was during the Clinton presidency. And we did feel that that's what was happening, that good things were happening for this country. He was a great president, you know, economically and, and for, um, the goodwill of the people, I think, you know, and they tried to get health care and, they, tra and they, they tried to do the right thing. Um, you know, he had his own personal peccadillos, but I think that, so that led me on that path. And, um, and I continued, and I played a lot of, you know, political characters I, from, I played Jack Kennedy, uh, you know, I played uh, Hoynes on, on the vice president on the West Wing, who wasn't that, uh, really a, a good guy or uh, people perceived not to be a good guy. Uh, and, you know, and, and then I played Ronald Reagan in, um, in killing Reagan, uh, which was, 
on, on that, that geo. So, it, so I've done that and, and it's great doing all the research about those people. And the one thing they all had in common was that they cared about this country and they doing that job was a life's goal. And they had lived their life to, and, and their life had led them to perform that role. And, you know, I wasn't uh, a fan of Reagan's politics, but I certainly, you can't act politics, you know, it was all about his heart and his relationship with Nancy. That's what we played on that movie um, and, and about the effect of uh, his near death experience and, and what, how, how that affected him. So it's the humanity of those people. Now, you know, that can be imaginary in an actor, in an actor's mind, but all the reading that one does and, and that I did, and especially for research for those characters just showed me that they were very noble characters. And I haven't seen that kind of nobility anywhere in, in recent years. And I, I fear for this country, if we don't have that kind of leadership again soon. Well, that's a, that's a, that's how we end the show is with a wait to see. And that is a true wait to see what will happen over this, this country in the next few months, but you are doing more than your share. I know you'll keep doing it. Tim, Thank you for being on Nothing Personal. The honor has certainly been mine. Thank you. No, it's mine. Thank you so much. And I can't believe we're, let's just keep going. I can also do another one. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's great talking talk to you all day, Tim. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.